Kia ora, good afternoon. The panel of RNZ National Wallace Chapman here. We have Scott Campbell and Anadine. Lots coming in regarding a degree versus a trade. Uh, a lot of trade is getting in touch. And we have one uh, at 4.40, a trade tradesperson who has a degree. He says a degree is good for one thing, and that's his dinner table conversation. So we talk about that later on. But to this, the first one-on-one leaders debate, TVNZ last night, just over one million people tuned in. Spirited or soporific? What do you think? 90 minutes of Chris Hipkins and Chris Luxon head-to-head. Many topics reversed, but here's a snippet of what Hipkins had to say about Nationals' proposed tax cuts. Nationals' tax cuts would make inflation worse, and they want to cut all of the targeted supports that we're putting in place to support Kiwis with the cost of living. Things like free early childhood education for two-year-olds, taking away the prescription co-payment. These are things that the National Party wants to take away. Discounted public transport for young New Zealanders. They want to take those things away to pay for tax cuts that for many New Zealanders won't actually give them $150 a week. But aside from us viewers at home... What was it like being in the room itself? Well, my little eye spied someone I know, and in true Fashion Week form, he was in one of the front rows, row B or C, looking extremely relaxed under the warm studio lights, and who wrote a must-read piece about it, none other than staff writer for the New Zealand Herald, Steve Braunius. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Wallace. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. And we all saw you. 90 minutes. Can I ask, how did you maintain your energy levels? Well, I didn't really. I, I, I zoned out. I dozed off. I fell asleep on live TV. The Herald sent a sleeping man to this debate. How would you sum the debate up? Oh, I was kind of the night of the agreeable dead. I suppose they seem to agree with each, with each other about a great deal of things and seem to put on a forced kind of joviality and, uh, uh, you know, and, and seem to be saying that, look, we, we like each other. It's just that we have a few different ideas. Uh, that was not terribly engaging. Maybe it played out different on TV, but in a very small little studio with mauve lighting, uh, mauve lightning bolts on a black backdrop and this instrumental music was quite mauve too. It was a dreadful affair. Uh, before the show, it was a very nice uh, sort of floor manager. He said to the audience, there was only about 60 people there. Uh, look, by all means, laugh if something is funny and by all means, uh, you know, uh, uh, react and respond. And... Um, well, you know, the night of the agreeable dead uh, had an appropriately kind of zombie audience. Nobody said a goddamn word. Well, the can whole I just time. Pick, can I just pick up on that because that's what I, as a person who used to host, you know, a, a show in a pub, yes. which was pretty raucous, I was looking for a flicker of energy from the audience, and I found absolutely zero. And I was wondering if that is because you were told, um, by all accounts, you must say or do nothing except smile. Indeed not. We were instructed not to heckle, but we were encouraged to participate. And nobody did. It certainly wasn't for lack of encouragement from the from the floor manager. He's a really lovely guy, and he had the audience on his side. But the two leaders did not. And, I mean, you know, it's in a studio. A studio isn't made for a live kind of act. You're sitting there and you're looking at uh, the host's back the entire time. 
and then looking at these uh, these two these two fellows who are um, quite short, by the way. Did you know that? I mean, I seldom yeah. stoop over people, but afterwards I went over to say hi to Chris Hipkins, and I found myself staring down on his scalp saying, it's nice to meet you. Well, let's bring in our panel, uh, Steve. We've got Anna, Dean and Scott Campbell. Anna, did you watch it? Hi, Steve. I did watch it, and I did see Steve in the background, and I saw Duncan Grieve <laughs> writing furiously, lots of notes, so that was the kind of the most action I saw from the audience. I mean, it, it was... It was astonishingly dull, as you as you say, Steve. And the the thing I've been trying to work out is is just how the you know was it the fault of the presenter? Was it the platform? Was it the strange moving imagery behind them every time they talked? I saw a lot of chatter online that people were finding that quite distracting. But the biggest thing I found actually that was weird was the post-match stand-up like we'd just watched a game not not the panel discussion but the actual individual media scrum that happened where the two leaders then got to talk about how they immediately thought they'd done and then answer further questions and that was something I hadn't seen before um but the sports analogies did my head in. Um, yeah, the strange combative nature of of the the adjudicator that and I don't know. I just, I just thought it should all be a lot more accessible from our public broadcaster. I had higher expectations. Yeah, I think the production itself was fine, and Jessica Much Mackay mm. uh, is, is a very good uh, interviewer and presenter. It's just the two gentlemen involved. I think the most sort of interesting they got actually was during the commercial breaks, and really? uh, they were yeah they would they would dart out from behind their little stage there. And uh, it was interesting watching them. You know, Chris Hipkins sort of wanders away with a, a kind of a sad, dreamy ear to him. <laughs> and uh, Luxon uh, walks away with a more determined gait. And he was always the first one back behind uh, the stage, like he was preparing. And you could see him uh, physically trying to relax his face. So that was much more interesting than anything they actually said, I found. You'd, re- you'd relate to this, Scott. It's those moments behind the scenes which can actually give you some real insight, Scott Campbell. Yeah, that was going to be my question. I've sat in a few audiences um, of those debates before as well, too. And I, I think, you know, I'll defer to somebody far smarter than me, my fiance Amanda, who watched um, the so-called debate last night. And she said, oh, they both looked really good, um, but they didn't really say much. And I think that's what Steve is also echoing at the moment. And I think, Steve, during that period in the breaks, do they talk to each other? Do, do they do anything? Were they engaging with each other? Do these guys... Yes, like the, each other from uh, what you can uh, see? Yes, well, yeah, again, it was very agreeable right from the start. They they did uh, greet each other uh, in a very friendly fashion before the debate uh, and indeed afterwards. In between, they would, they would go off to their respective corners where they each had a little goon squad of comms, you know. And uh, Chris Hipkins barely seemed to be sort of listening. He was on another sort of ethereal, poetic kind of plane. And Luxon, uh, likewise, wasn't really listening. You could see him. So he's, he's like a guy. He's a, one of those guys who looks so he's he's swallowed a book, you know. But in this case, his book's all these wretched 
motivational self-help bullshit. In fact, you know, they were asked about their favourite book and he came up with something about Inside the, the, the Mind of Tennis, which he misquoted the title, and it's a motivational... Is it a good book? It's a motivational book. It's highly regarded on Goodreads, which must mean it's terrible. And uh, Chris Hipkins unfortunately said that he was too busy to read, but th- this, in fact, is not true because I, I recently, in my hat as books editor at Newsroom, asked his office for a photograph of Chris Hipkins in front of his bookcase. They duly provided this photograph, and it's a very well-stocked, uh, intelligently curated bookcase. This guy is a reader uh, so why didn't of, of we political see biographies why didn't as opposed we see to self-help. That? Why didn't we see that? Well, I, I may think we did. You, you could see an, he's an intelligent man. That came through. Uh, Christopher Luxon is an ambitious man, and I think that came through too. You know, uh, as I say, he looks like he's swallowed a book, and you could virtually see the ink stains on his on his head. Steve, the debate has been pretty. Sorry. The debate pretty much was reflective of the campaign as a whole at the moment, though, right? It's been pretty boring this campaign. I don't know. I haven't watched any of it. <laughs> Wrong. I've read it a bit in the here, Steve. <laughs> Wrong person to ask. Now, just finally, Steve, because I was actually looking at, uh, you know, um, looking at other debates in history uh, in recent times, and actually some of them, some of them really come to mind. And I think just off the top of my head, you know, 2002, Helen Clark, Bill English, and the audience was roaring. And I was thinking, gosh, sometimes you miss mm. that cut and thrust of some of those earlier leaders. Yes, that's right. I, I, I think the audience does pick up on the uh, leaders involved. Um, the last one was uh, Ardern English. Now, that was a hell of a good debate. You could see them when they came in that they kind of essentially loathed each other. And the audience picked up on this, and it was a tense, loud, aggressive, noisy, kind of ecstatic event. Whereas as this one, uh, there's two very mild-mannered fellows. Although in, in your wonderful columns, Must Read, there was one uh, piece of excitement you say in the New Zealand Herald, and that happened just before. Gosh, it was exciting. A, a coat hanger fell over and spilled all its coat hangers, Wallace. You should have been there. But, yeah, never really lived up to that afterwards. Good on you. Always a pleasure, Steve. Steve Thank Braunius. you, Wallace. It is uh, 18 past for the panel. Anna Dean and Scott Campbell uh, with us. Uh, the price of petrol is going up, 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 and it's hurting. Prices for 91 have topped $3 a litre in most parts of New Zealand. The national average for 95 was $3.19 and 98 was $3.00. 32. Data shows that the average pri- petrol price has risen from just under two bucks a litre for 91 in 2015 to more than three dollars in many parts of the country. Are we trapped in a car dependent cycle? With us, Ben Willis Croft, Professor of Macro ma- Marketing at AUT. Uh, ben Kiota. Hi. You, in fact, mentioned that Kiwis could, in fact, be trapped in a bit of a cycle here, stuck with paying fuel for whatever it costs. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of people who don't have a choice. And then what can you do? You fill the car up and go to work and go to school and go to the doctor, or you don't go to those places. Uh, We don't have sufficient public transport. We don't have enough safe and direct routes for active transport. That's walking, cycling, micro-mobility. For people to have a real choice. 
And you also, uh, in an article I was reading on stuff, you also single out the fact that, hey, it might be okay in larger cities, but when you go to the regions, some of the more rural areas, maybe smaller towns, um, you really can get stuck because you don't have a choice. There's a real issue uh, with rural New Zealanders, and we often forget that living in cities, that people who live in the countryside, if they can't drive for any reason, and that might be loss of license due to age, it might be being too young to have a license, or it might be losing your license due to to, uh, a drunk driving conviction, instantly people are isolated. And loneliness is a real problem in this country and every developed country in the world. Uh, we need to mature as a society and enable people to not drive but still remain connected to communities. All right, Ben, let's go into our, our panel. They'll have a question or comment. Uh, I'm just seeing here uh, Anna Terry Collins uh, from the AA. He said it was likely the price of premium would go up to $3.50 a litre. So um, this is this is pretty big stuff for uh, people around the country, isn't it, Anna? Absolutely. And I mean, I, I totally hear what Ben's saying about that rural and city or the urban urban living. I live rurally and um, I have no choice, but but there is a lot of cycleway investment that has been happening. And I mean, I, I read a, um, a report from Wakakotahi, I think it was last year, that 70% of Kiwis were wanting more cycle infrastructure. And it seems to be happening. We have a whole lot of public transport policy from um, Labour and the Greens. So um, it seems like it's a mixture of suppressed demand and surely more and more people are going to be getting out of their cars. Yes, I understand some people don't have a choice, but surely it's the um, it's the right and responsibility of our um, governing bodies to actually provide uh, public transport options for people. I couldn't agree with you more. And um, you know, The suppressed demand for cycling, we know the barrier to that is people feeling safe on the roads, or on cycle paths. There's mm. very, very few people in this country who can get on a cycle path at home and get off a cycle path at work. So we all have cyclists interacting with drivers at one point on that trip, usually on the way to the cycle path and the way off the cycle path. Until we get a more mature road culture where we're more polite to each other, uh, we're not going to have people feeling safe And the number one recommendation from the cycle action uh, group that was set up by the government many years ago was to have safe passing laws. It's the one thing they've never done. Let's bring in... I saw some... Oh, sorry, Anna, keep going. I just saw some interesting stats that um, the Basin Reserve had in Wellington had had a 93% increase in cyclists going past. And um, the stats out of Christchurch are also pretty amazing that people actually are changing their behaviour and um, and things are happening. So it's just about getting those motorists to understand, I guess. Well, it's field of dreams. If you build it, they'll come. And yes. we, we think about Amsterdam, we think about places far away having amazing cycling infrastructure, we forget that the share of mobility that was cycling in Christchurch was the highest in the world in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. We can do it. We didn't, we didn't have cycle lanes back in the 50s and 60s. We had roads where cyclists were dominant oh. and people mm. were polite to each other. The photos are amazing. I, uh, they, 
that they showed traffic jams of cycles in Christchurch. Traffic jams of cycles in Christchurch. You know what, um, Ben, if you can get your hands on a couple of those images, I'd love you to email them uh, to me uh, and uh, take a look. That's uh, that's an interesting anecdote there, uh, Scott. Um, but looking at this uh, petrol price rise, uh, Scott Campbell, it's it would be pretty unsustainable for, for many whanau, huh? Um, yeah, and I think that choice, um, as Ben was um, referring to before. See, I'm I have a bus that pulls up right outside our gate, like literally right outside the gate. Right. Um, and to get into town, and now I would choose to take it, but it's so unreliable uh, um, that I then would miss um, in the afternoon picking up my kids on school run. And I think um, Ben, is that one of the mindset changes, both for I guess for the for the user, but then also for the public? provider the local authorities is reliability just as important as price reliability frequency they're so important and my definition of public transport is a service that happens so frequently you don't need a timetable so when i'm living in vienna and my wife's from austria we go there on sabbatical we never look at a timetable because there's one every three to five minutes on the underground every five to ten minutes on the bus or the tram, you will get there reliably and you won't be stuck in a traffic jam. We haven't achieved that in New Zealand yet. Goodness, can I, ask, can I ask you, Ben, what's the size? Uh, they're so frequent, you don't even need a time table. You're talking about Vienna. What's the general size of Vienna? Is it, is it the size of, say, uh, the breadth of a Christchurch or a Wellington or what? It's almost exactly the same number of people as Auckland. So they're really comparable cities. Auckland had a previous mayor that wanted to make it the most livable city in the world, and Vienna is the most livable city in the world. Over 80% of trips in the city are not by car. They're walking, they're cycling, they're public transport, and we see marvellous things like the President of Austria on the underground in public transport instead of a car. It's a truly democratic signal when we see the rich and powerful using public transport. 80% of trips in Vienna, the size of New Zealand's super city, not by car. That's that's right. That's quite something. Isn't it? No, interesting stuff, Ben. Kia ora. Appreciate your time. That's Professor of Macro Marketing at AUT, Ben uh, Willis-Croft there. Just, uh, I guess, a response to the price of petrol. Gosh, yeah, uh, could top $3.50 a litre. So the, the, the trick is how are you going to manage that? Uh, and uh, what can we do about it? Maybe um, try and mix the car use with some other form uh, of transport. You're on the panel. Uh, in Z National, we have Anna Dean, we've got Scott Campbell with us, and we've had a fantastic response to uh, a degree or trade. Uh, are we too, are we overhyping getting a degree? And a lot of tradies have texted in, and thank you so much for that. So we're going to be talking about that after. What do you get from being an electrician or a bricklayer or a, or a plumber? Um, and indeed a degree. Do you regret paying all those tens of thousands of dollars for your university degree or not. 27 past four to this. Now, someone in the RNZ office came to us with an interesting dilemma. Should they or should they not attend their upcoming school 
reunion. For those who had a great time in school, it's possibly a welcome invitation. But what's it like for those who shiver when they think back on those years? So we ask you, have you attended one? What was it like? Uh, One listener says, I say yes. Ours has been going for a long time. Had our 50-year reunion last year at Mary's College, Christchurch, in the year of 73. No snooty girls there. So go and do it. Gary says, I will never go to school reunions for two reasons. One, I did not like the way I was treated by the students. Two, they will never invite me to the reunions, is Gary's view. Anna, have you been to a school reunion? Yes, I have. I went to my 20-year school oh. reunion. Yes, 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 yes. And it was a it was fantastic to see um all of the young women that I went through. But our headmistress turned up. Can I ask uninvited. What Ooh, Nelson College for Girls. Nelson College for Girls. And um it was a very strange affair because the headmistress turned up uh, uninvited and she gave a speech and she said she was there to apologize to all of us. Um so it was uh, it was it was rather odd. <laughs> I can. I'll carry on. It's a. It's not a very flattering story. But she, um, she said that she'd realised that um, she'd set us wrong on the path. We were third formers when when she first started, and um, when she took over, and she told us that women could do anything, and they could do everything. They could. They could um, have a career, have a family, go out there, and you know, get it. Get it. Basically, was the message when I was going through school, and she came to apologise for that um, because well, she well, realised. Well. Yeah, it was it was setting these tricky expectations, and uh, it was a very odd, um, strange, strange speech. One that, of the weirdest speeches I've ever heard. The, that is a memorable <laughs> twenty-year reunion. I have never been myself. I'm not quite sure. This is Nelson College. I'm not quite sure if I'd go or not. To be quite frank, Scott Campbell, what about you? Yeah, I have, um, and I actually the the reunion that I went to at Pungakawa School in the Bay of Plenty, um, a, a small school just outside of Tupuki. Um, I went. To, and, did you? Yes. I went to. Um, and so I, I was actually quite happy because then it made me sort of reminisce on the days that I was kicking goals from halfway on the rugby field. <laughs> <laughs> and then it brought me down to size pretty quickly that the rugby field was very small, <laughs> actually. But um, I love seeing a whole bunch of people who I hadn't seen for so long. Yeah. And to be fair to the person who brought this up, you know, I went with some trepidation because I was thinking, oh, I wonder if that person's going to be there or yes. what will this one do? And, mm. you know, those sorts of things. Will they remember me because of this or that? I was a good guy at school, obviously, Wallace. but. Yep. Uh, you know, I was I, I did go with some um, like maybe angst, nervousness, maybe. I can only imagine. I mean, that's what I'll be thinking as well. Oh my goodness me! If uh, what if this person's going to show up, Anna? What was it like uh, reconnecting after all those years with your former classmates? It was actually great, and to be honest, I was actually in contact with quite a few of them, and what an amazing group of women, quite a few PhDs, um, all sorts of interesting study. One of the things I found most interesting was that the ugly ducklings had really transformed the ones that had 
um, being kind of geeky and nerdy, put on a real show and effort to 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 be quite different from that. And I found that I mean it's a it's a very interesting anthropological experiment um, going going to your school reunion. And I think it's one to be embraced. It's fascinating. Really great words of advice. So this is to be embraced. So to my college colleague who is um, oscillating on whether she wants or she wants to go to the school reunion, embrace it. Absolutely go. You'll have some fun. Uh, loving your company, 2101. You can email me, thepanel at rnz.co.nz.